You know, two weeks ago, beautiful, sunny, warm Sunday morning. Today, beautiful, sunny, going to be warm today. Last week, you know, 20 and flurries. But hey, we got to go out and serve our community. We picked up trash. And you listen, that's something that we do twice a year. We do it spring and fall. We do leaf cleanup. We do trash pickup um, as a way of of serving and loving others because our worship is more than the songs that we sing. It is so much more than hearing a message. It's more than just prayer. It's the lives that we live. And so corporately, we do that. Uh, it was great. But it's going to be back doing this today, um, getting to talk, getting to, to teach, getting to sing. Um, and, you know, when it comes to uh, the way that we, I guess, do teaching or preaching here, it's a little bit of a, uh, a mixed approach, whereas we don't just do topical series and we don't just go, like, through books of the Bible. We do both. So sometimes we'll do topical and be like, hey, well, here's four to six weeks and we're talking about uh, you know, generosity or relationships or forgiveness or work and purpose. Uh, but then at the same time, we'll be like, all right, we're working through, like right now, we're working through the gospel of John. And one of the reasons why we do that is because um, we, we want our faith to be tied to more than just things that we do, right? We don't want to be, I mean, it, faith is practical, it is pragmatic, it is useful, but it's more than that. And so we always want to make sure that what we are doing is tied to the story of Jesus, because that, that, that's what it is about. It's this story that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And if you're a follower of him, you're invited to live out of that story, to enter into his story, to be a part of that. And so kind of going through books gives us that opportunity to tie things to it, right? To go through and be like, oh, here's this really cool historical context thing. Or oh, I, I think it's cool, right? So you're like, no, Phil, we don't really care about history. I do. Right? And but like, here's what was happening in the world, and here's how God was working through it, and here's what it means, big picture. And so that's what we're doing with the Gospel of John. The, the, the difficult thing is sometimes when you're doing that, you're going through a book, you come up to a, a passage that's like, hmm, <laughs> what do I do with that exactly? Like, it's not, like, there's a strange verse here, or it's a little bit confusing, or it's just easier not to talk about. Uh, and that's going to be kind of the case with a couple of verses that we're going to encounter today. Um, that they're a little bit dense, and they're like, what? It takes some nuance, and, and a lot of times maybe we'll just skip over something like that, or if you're a person that, like, you're, like, reading your Bible and you come across it, you're like, okay, and just kind of, I don't know what to do with that. I'll just kind of move on. What was he talking about there? Or sometimes verses like the ones we're going to use, uh, we're going to look at today can be used to, like, pull out of context and do some really kind of fringe, cringe kind of faith stuff with, where you're like, oh, I think it means this, and I'm like, I don't think it does. So here's, here's what I know, though. Here's what I believe about all of you that we got this. We're going to plow through it today. Are, we, are you on board? Yeah? Okay, so here we go. John chapter 10. We're finishing John 10 today. Some of you are like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's only the third week of John chapter 10. Um, but the, the setting kind of changes. The, the last two weeks, it was kind of same setting. Jesus is talking, uh, this beautiful imagery about sheep and shepherd and, and how he loves people and he wants people, to, he wants to be the, the good shepherd for people and, and the life that is found in him. Um, now, like, the scenery changes a little bit. Uh, so we're John 10, 22 is where we're starting. And, and John actually gives us the setting right off the bat. So here's what we read. The festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade, right? So John's like, here's the scene. Here's the context. There's a couple things I want to, to draw our attention to. We've got, we got the, the kind of trifecta here. We have Jesus in the temple during a festival, and he's going to start making some public remarks, if you've been kind of following through the Gospel of John, anytime that happens, stuff's about to go down, right? But Jesus is in the temple during a festival, and he's like, he's just like, just drop that right there for you and see what you think about that. And it always ends with like him and the religious leaders just butting heads. And that's, that's going to happen today as well. Um, this particular festival is, is really interesting. So the Festival of Dedication, uh, it is not an Old Testament feast that was described or prescribed. 
So you go to what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. There's certain festivals and feasts and celebrations that they're supposed to remember each year. This one isn't that. This is actually in the time of Jesus. It's something that's relatively new that the Jewish people were celebrating. Um, you may have never heard of the festival of dedication before, but you may know it by a different name today. It's called Hanukkah. This is the, the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Um, and, and here is how it kind of came about. In between what we would call the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, you've got this intertestamental period. Uh, it's during that time that Alexander the Great has come through and, and like, Greekified the entire Roman world. Alexander dies off at a very young age, if you know anything about that. And he, his, his kingdom's kind of split up into some different areas. And one of those particular areas would be known as Syria. And there's a... a Greek king of this Syrian kingdom by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, Epiphanes literally means God manifest or the illustrious one. And so, like, this is the title he used for himself. You're kind of starting to get a, an idea of his character. Like, well, maybe a little egotistical, a little narcissistic. He's like, I am Antiochus, God manifest. But the Jewish people changed one little letter in Epiphanes and made him Antiochus Epimenes which means Antiochus the madman, because he was crazy and brutal and ruled with an iron fist and oppression and violence. Uh, and so what he wants to do is he really wants to Greekify everyone and eradicate other uh, religious expressions. He wants everyone to worship the, the Greek gods, and so he makes the practice of Judaism illegal, uh, and then that's not working, and so he goes into the Jewish temple in 167 B.C., overruns the temple, sets up pagan altars, and then he sacrifices a pig in the temple which to the Jewish people are like, no, only the priest can make sacrifices, and pigs are unclean animals. It does not belong anywhere near the temple. This is like the, the biggest slap in the face, the biggest kind of like uh, abomination. Literally, this becomes known as uh, the abomination that causes desolation. And there's like passages in scripture that use that phrase that are pointing to this moment where Antiochus comes in. So he's ruling with brutality and bloodshed and oppression. The Jewish people start to revolt. They start these kind of guerrilla warfare campaigns. Uh, and eventually, they grow strong enough to overthrow their oppressor under the leadership of, of a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, or his nickname is Judas the Hammer, which is just a great nickname. The Hammer, like, let's go. And he earned that nickname, too, because they, they, they take um, their, their nation back, they take Israel back for a, a, a period of time through violence, through, like, warfare, and when they take it back, they get the temple back, and they rededicate the temple. They, they, they cleanse it, they set it apart again for, for the worship of, of their God uh, and, and for what it was supposed to be. And so they have this eight-day-long celebration remembering that. Welcome to what is happening when Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem at the temple during this time. It is the remembrance of that moment. Um, and, and out of the Maccabean revolt, there's actually like a 130-year period where Israel's kind of like a, a, its own nation again. And then Rome comes along and says, Haha, not so fast, not anymore. And then so they're under Roman oppression during the time of Jesus. But there's this 130-year period where they're kind of ruling themselves, and they have this new line of kings that come from the, the line of Judas Maccabeus. They're not actually kings in the line of David, but they're, they're ruling, they're governing the people. And this festival is happening here in John 10, and all this is the backstory, and all this is what everybody is celebrating and, 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 and remembering. And so at times like this, there was this patriotic fervor. Um, and, and like people were like, yes, God, do it again. Bring the, it's, it's hammer time, okay? We want hammer version two, okay? That's what we want. Like, we want you got to throw off the oppression of the Romans. Let's take them out. Let's Israel be this massive, you know, superpower. Um, there's all this thinking of God and liberation, and they think about how that happened, how they, they threw off their oppressor, and how their kings ruled through violence and through bloodshed and through force, and it was a political, military kind of movement. 
And that really does color a lot of how some of the first century Jewish people were expecting their Messiah to come. When's our Redeemer going to come? When's the the anointed one? The one is going to rescue us. We think it's going to look like Judas the hammer. And Jesus shows up, and he is so not that at all. Right? He's not about like, um, it's not about uh, uprisings and violence and bloodshed. He shows up and he's doing all these things that are Messiah-ish, that look like he's the Messiah. He's healing people and he's, he's proclaiming these, these massive truths and he's gathering these crowds. And they're like, you look like, are you the Messiah? But you don't look like what we thought you were going to look like. And, and so like, because Jesus, he's not about violent uprisings. He's not about taking their nation back. He, he's not about destroying or owning the other side and going, I'll show you, we win, you lose, <laughs> Like, that's not the heart of Jesus. He's got a different agenda. He's got a, a, a global agenda, a, a, more betterful, a more better, more beautiful picture of human flourishing that he wants to invite everyone into. And I got to say, even in our, our like, modern times, um, that makes Jesus unpopular to people. That makes Jesus unpopular to a lot of Christians <laughs> to say he, he's not about the, the violence and taking things by force. That often made him, makes him misunderstood as well, even though that's true in our day. Definitely true in Jesus' time. And so we see that in, in the question that these religious leaders ask Jesus, right? There's this backdrop going on. We're remembering the, the rededication of the temple, and these religious leaders ask Jesus. They surround him and say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Like, come right out and say it, Jesus. Like, we, we don't think you've given us enough information yet. So just make it really, really clear. And he answers and says, I did tell you, but you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. And drawing on this imagery and language from earlier in, in John 10, it's like my sheep know me and they love me and I have a relationship with my sheep and, and, and because they know me and love me and I lay down my life for my sheep, we're in this relationship, and, and, but, but you are not that, so you don't see me for who I actually am. But I'm doing all of these works that are pointing over and over and over and over to the identity of who I am, but you don't want to see it. And he kind of identifies this, 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 this thing, the difference between doubt and disbelief. Because they're saying, he's like, listen, they're coming to him saying, tell us plainly that you're the Messiah. Give us the right information. And he goes, I've given you all the information you've needed. I did these works. But your problem isn't that you don't, you know, that you need more information. Your problem is that you don't believe. You don't want to believe. Because the reality was, it didn't matter how much more information he gave them. It was going to be like, nope, still don't believe you, still don't believe you. Still, you don't look the way we think you should. And like, there's this, there, and even today, man, like, there's a difference between disbelief and doubt. I think doubt is actually a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. When you're a person of faith and you're like, you know what, I'm struggling with this. I'm trying to figure this out. I've still got questions, but I'm working through that. You look at the disciples of Jesus, all of them were like, oh, we don't know. They're, they're constantly doubting. They're constantly confused. And he's like, okay, come on. Just keep following me. Keep plugging along. We're going to get through this. The, the, the doubt and questioning and struggle, that is like part of the journey of a Christian. I still have questions and doubt sometimes. Where I'm like, I don't know about this. And what about, but God, like, I, okay, I trust the character of Jesus revealed on the cross. Okay, like that is my North Star. Let me figure the rest of this out. Like, it's okay to have doubts and to struggle with things. In fact, the, like the, the suppression of doubt to say, just believe, don't ask questions, don't ever question things, don't ever own things for yourself, is what tragically leads so many people to say, I don't want anything to do with faith. Right? Well, there's this kind of like hardline fundamentalism that, that says, you have to believe this, don't ask any questions. And I kind of had a background in that a little bit. Um, 
And it's like one of two things usually happens in that moment. Either you become that way and kind of cold and hard and calloused in your faith as well, or you come up against something that bumps up against your understanding of faith and it's different and you're like, well, I guess I can't believe any of this. Right? No, doubt is okay. Work through those things. Understand who Jesus actually is. He tells them, listen, you, you, don't, you don't believe me and it's not because I haven't done enough or said enough. It's because I don't, I don't fit your mold of the Messiah that you're waiting for. You don't want me to be this way, right? You're not my sheep. And then he kind of shifts to this, it, it, to me, like the way I read it, it's, it's almost tragic. It's like, you're not my sheep. Because you're not my sheep, man, you're missing out. Because he, he goes into this description of what, what's true of his sheep, right? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You guys, you're not my sheep, but oh, if you were, how good it would be for you. If you just come to me, if you just see me for who I am, you, you, you'll be my sheep, and you'll hear me, and you'll follow me, and I'll lead you into the, all that imagery that we looked at the last couple of weeks of like green pastures and abundant life, and I give them eternal life, and, and nothing can take that away from them, which is this beautiful truth, right? Like the thing that, that humans, we talk about this, that we need, like the biggest problem of every human, doesn't matter where you live in the world, what culture, what point in history, there is one thing that is like the, the biggest problem for every human ever to exist, and that is death at the end of the line. Like we live in a world, like what the, what the scriptural narrative tells us is that our, our world is infected by sin and evil. And that exists out there and it affects me, but it also exists in me and I contribute it to the world. And ultimately, like that leads us down this, this path where death is like, that's where we're going. That's what it's about. And Jesus is like, I, I, want to, I want to provide a solution for that deepest need. I want to give you eternal life, the abundant life with me. And, and, and once you have that, like you're good, you got it. You, you are my sheep. I am holding you. You are in my hand. And it brings us into this tension of life, though, right? He's like, okay, I'm a Christian, and Jesus has me in his hand, and I have the abundant life. And he says, I, I, I won't perish. I have eternal life. But sometimes life still stinks. And, and sometimes we go through just junk, and there's difficulty, and there's, there's pain, and there's suffering. And eventually, death awaits all of us. And so we hold these two things at the same time. It's like, well, he says, I'm not going to perish, and I have the abundant life, and yet here's my lived experience but the thing is, it's not that we won't go through difficulty, but when we do, we're in his hand. It's not that we won't face a form of death, but when we do, when we die, we are safe in dying. Even in death, I have you. You know, the apostle Paul picks up on this language in his letter to the Romans, these followers of Jesus living in first century Rome, and they're, I mean, they're persecuted, and they're thrown in prison, and they're tortured, and he comes along, and he just starts, like, I love this passage, it's so beautiful. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nope. That's my translation, by the way, the nope. Which is like, no, like nothing can. We're, we're more than conquerors in all these things through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers or height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's like, you're in his hand. He's going to carry you through no matter what you go. That's what it looks like to be my sheep. I'm holding you. I'm holding you. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And then he, he elaborates and says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of father's hand. So, so not only are my sheep, can they not be taken out of my hand, but they also can't be taken out of my father's hand, like God most high. And he's gonna say, and here's why. And when he starts talking about here's why, this is where he starts getting into trouble. Can't take them out of my hand, 
can't take him out of my father's hand because I and the father are one. He's like, hey, listen, the reason why they're safe in my hand and they're safe in the father's hand is because we are one. And we're like, I don't know, our, our context is kind of like, oh, we're one. We're unified. We're on the same team, right? Because that's what we like, kind of think about. Like, you and me, we're in this together. We are one, you know, one heart, one soul, one vision. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme give fried chicken. Anybody know that song? Okay, maybe. All right. <laughs> but it's like, it's like, like, yeah, we're one in that regard. We're one in that regard. But that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, what he's getting at and the, the, the wording that's used is significant. So you have I and the Father, and they're these individual nouns, and they're like masculine because the, the, uh, the, the nouns have, like the words have gender. But then the, the, the term are one is this Greek hen as men, and it's neuter. It's, so so the, the idea that it carries is that the assertion is not that Jesus and the Father are, are, are one person, but rather that they are one thing, that they are two persons, but one essence. He's saying that, that I and the Father are ontologically inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And we're like, man, that, that's, that's, a lot, that's a lot for our brains, okay? It, it just is, and we're like, it's, it's a different culture, and it's a different context. One of the things I love, it's like if you want to, if you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, you can look at oftentimes the reaction to what he said. And so he's like, I and the Father are one. And instantly, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. I and the Father are one. Like, you son of a, you can't say that. And they're going to kill him on the spot. And, okay, I don't know if I should like this or not, but I love the next thing that Jesus says because to me it just seems like it's dripping with sarcasm. Um, and he's like, hey, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which one of these are you stoning me for? <laughs> like, you guys, are you guys mad because I'm like, you know, because I healed the blind guy because that was the most recent, you know, miracle that he had kind of performed? Oh, it was it the paralyzed guy that you're mad about that he can now walk? Are you mad that I fed all those people? Are you mad that I walked on water? I know what it was. It was the turning water into wine, wasn't it? You wanted it to be grape juice, didn't you, right? It's like, no, it's like, no, that's not what it is. And they're going to say that. We aren't stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because you... Being, you're just a man, you're immortal, you're just a person, like us, that's their opinion. You being a man, make yourself God. This is their problem. And they have, like, there's, there's no, you know, dispute in their minds what he's claiming. Like, no, we know exactly what you're saying. You are, you are a man walking around, and yet you're saying that you're God. And there's even this, this kind of interesting thing that's going on here, because the claim that they're making, they're saying, you are a man, and you make yourself God. But what we hold to be true is actually the reverse of that, is that God has actually made himself a man in the person of Jesus. It's like, you're, you're, just, a, you're just a guy, and you're claiming to be God, and so we have every right. This is blasphemy. We get to kill you now. And now Jesus is, is going to kind of provide some justification or some clarification of the claim that he's making. He's going to back it up and say, here's why I can claim that. And this is the part that's kind of dense, and it's like, what is he saying? And it's often misunderstood or skipped over or used to do weird things. So we're going to look at it, and we'll unpack it in some context. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? Now, the, the word, when he uses the word law, can refer to either, like, the law proper, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, or it can refer to the entire Old Testament. And that's the way he's using it here, because he's going to quote something that's actually in the book of Psalms. Isn't it written in your law, I said... You are gods. That's his quotation. And if he called those to whom the word of God came gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I'm the Son of God? He's like, you're saying I'm blaspheming because I said that I'm the Son of God, 
But guys, you're the religious leaders. You know your Bible. Don't we have this psalm that uses this phrase, I said that you're sons of God? And so what, what's, what's your deal? What's your problem? And so this is, like this part right here, specifically verse 34, uh, can be a little confusing. It's like, what does Jesus mean? And some strange things have come out of this. Sometimes we'll trunk, people will truncate that at verse 34 and be like, Jesus said we're God. See, we're all gods. We all have this divine spark. Jesus said so. This is kind of like some new age teaching. Um, this is where some... Uh, one of the things used to back some, um, some like Mormon theology, it says like, we become gods when, when we die. Um, but we have to understand Jesus in his context um, and what he's saying. So he's actually quoting Psalm 82, 6. So I want to read all of Psalm 82, and we'll talk about what he's getting at. So Psalm 82 says this. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. And this is the judgment that he pronounces. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here it is. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans, fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So Jesus is quoting just from verse 6, saying, hey, we, we have this thing in our, our scripture, in our Old Testament, question kind of becomes for interpretation purposes, like, well, who are these sons of God that he's talking about? And generally, there's two trains of thought on this, and there's kind of nuance and different perspectives within each one. But one interpretation is these little g gods, or these sons of the Most High, um, are rulers of the Israelite people. So judges and people that would uh, adjudicate, they would go kind of before the people and before God. Um, so that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is actually that these little g gods are spiritual beings. So things that we'd like, we would call like, you know, angels or demons maybe, or like little g gods, or uh, the Hebrew word is just Elohim. Um, and we could, we, could, we could go down a rabbit hole talking about that, and I would find that really fun. You may not. Uh, but for our purposes, it doesn't actually matter all that much for the way that Jesus is using it. It may not actually be significant because he's communicating the same thing either way. I'm just going to read you what one uh, scholar said about this. He said that Jewish interpreters were divided, as interpreters have been divided since then, on the question of whether those addressed in these terms by God are celestial beings or human judges. But for our present purpose, this question is not of first relevance. What is relevant is that they are manifestly inferior beings to the supreme God, and yet he calls them God's. If God himself calls them gods and sons of the most high at that, why should it be counted as a capital offense if the one sent of the father calls himself the son of God? In other words, like the, the point is that Jesus can take that title for himself and call himself the son of God without blaspheming, that there's precedent for it because he is the one who the father has sent into the world on this mission to rescue the world out of darkness and he's doing these signs to back it up so he can call himself that. It's what rabbis used during the time of Jesus to make arguments. It was, it was called for the, going from the lesser to the greater. And so he's saying, like, the lesser, if these spiritual beings and rulers, depending on how you would, uh, what interpretation you would take, if they can be called sons of God, that's the lesser, how much more, Jesus is saying, can I use that title for myself? How much, more, how much greater am I than them? Because I am the sent one and the set apart one, right? Uh, and now our context from the beginning comes back into this a little bit. Because he's saying, like, I'm the one that the Father has set apart and sent. This idea of being set apart, um, we, could, we could call it being sanctified. We could call it being, uh, like, set, like, set apart for a specific use or a purpose. Or we could say the one who is dedicated. They're at the festival of dedication, remembering when the temple was rededicated. And now here's Jesus saying, 
I am the one who has been set apart. I am the one who has been dedicated for the purposes of God. I am the one who has been sent into the world. That the temple was actually the place where, where like heaven and earth overlapped, where you meant to meet with God, where God's kind of purposes were, were going out into the world. Now Jesus is saying, yeah, that's actually me now. I'm the one who's been set apart and sent into the world to do for the world what God has always been longing to do, and that is to bring people back to him. And the reason that I can claim that and use this title and say I'm doing this, and he comes back to the, around to the idea that he started with, is the works that he's doing. If I'm not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. You guys, remember, I just healed that blind guy. You know, I've been doing these things, and there's all these rumors about me, and you've seen it for yourself. Remember these Jewish leaders, they, like, investigated the blind guy, and they called his parents, and they're like, are you sure he was really blind? And he's like, it's right in front of their faces. It's like, you see the works that I am doing. I am doing the things that only the Messiah would, is said would do. I am doing the things that only God himself has the power to do. Look at the works. Look at the works. I am the sent one. I am the set-apart one. And this, in this way, you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Here he is making the same claim again. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We are ontologically inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And this, this phrase, it has really deep, or him using this has very deep Old Testament um, kind of context, comes out of what's known as like name theology, where in the Old Testament, the name of God, that phrase, the name of the Lord, the name of God, was used as a stand-in for God himself. And so just as an example, we have in, in Psalm 20, um, may the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of God, the God of Jacob, protect you. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so they're not like, they're not just going around shouting the name of God and like, oh, yeah, we're safe now. They're like, no, this is God himself. He is our protector. And so they'll use this phrase like the name of God being in someone, specifically what we're going to look at in a second, is the angel of the Lord. And it is stand-in for God himself. So we bring that understanding into Exodus 23 where God is leading the people through the wilderness. He says, I'm gonna send my angel before you to protect you on the way, to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Don't defy him. He won't forgive you your acts of rebellion. Why? Why should we listen to this guy? Why should we follow this angel that you're giving us? For my name is in him. My name is in this angel. Pay attention to this angel because my name, I, I am in, my presence is here in this angel in your midst. It was a way of kind of God being able to be with his, uh, with his people, kind of like filtered access to God, because if not, their faces would like melt off like it's Indiana Jones, okay? You know what, you know what I'm talking about? Right? So it's like, I'm going to come in the form of this angel, but don't like make no mistake about it. I am in this angel. This is me in your presence. And this language gets used throughout the Old Testament. All these ideas get blended together with the name of God and the angel of the Lord showing up. And like, is that the angel? Is that God? The answer is yes. It's both. And Jesus is very aware of this context. And the religious leaders are very aware of this context. This is their scripture. This is their Bible. This is what they are raised on. This is their faith. And so we take that understanding back to John 10, where Jesus says, hey, I want you to know that I and the Father are one, and the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. There is no doubt in their mind what he's claiming. Like, you, you are looking at the most high God in the flesh. And again, the religious leaders know exactly what he's saying, and so they react accordingly. Verse 39, they were trying again to seize him, yet he escaped their grasp. So here's what's going on in this passage, right? There, there's a symmetry to it. There's two claims of Jesus saying, I'm God in the flesh. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 38, the Father is in me and I am the Father. There's two responses by the religious leaders. They try to stone him, they try to seize him. And right in the middle of it, 
is this reference to Psalm 82, Jesus saying, I am the one who has been set apart and sent by the Father to do something for the entire world. I am bringing to fulfillment and to closure this, this whole narrative of the Old Testament, what God was going to do. I am here doing it in your midst, in your presence. Deal with it. Okay, deal with it's my part. But, but he's coming off that strong to them. And what's really fascinating is these will actually be the final public statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. From here, he heads out into the wilderness, and then we see him um, with some friends at, at the death of Lazarus. From there, he's in the upper room just with his disciples, and then he's arrested, and he's crucified. Like, this is the last time he's kind of like in a public kind of teaching sense, addressing a crowd of people, cl- making claims about himself in the presence of the religious leaders, and in this last moment of him doing that, he does not back down. He will not back down from his claim of I am God in the flesh. In fact, he actually ups the ante and he drives it home. Remember, John in, this, in his gospel, is he, he's got a, a goal in mind. He's saying, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And Jesus in this passage is like, yes and yes, and I will not back down from my claims. I am the God, the God most high in the flesh. And they don't like that. And again, things are in motion now from about three months from this point. He's going to be crucified. But we're just left with this, this kind of claim of Jesus, because from here on, he just goes out in the wilderness and hangs out. He's like, here it is. Here's this massive claim that I'm making. And I guess the question that leaves with us, though, is like, okay, and what do I do with that? Right? And, and I struggled with that, because like whenever uh, I prepare messages, I'm always like, okay, I want there to be an application. Right? Like I want us to take you know, Scripture and the way of Jesus and go, okay, what do I do with that? How do I incorporate that into my life? I want to go home, and here's a change that I need to make, or here's something I need to start doing or stop doing. Like, like what is the, what's, what's the application? And like when you come across passages like this, there is no like, all right, go home and take these three steps, you know? There's not, there's not something super direct. And I, uh, I was having a hard time with that this week, and I asked Christy, I'm like, hey, honey, I want you to read this passage um, and tell me what you think about it. And so she did. And she's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it. And I'm like, what's the so what? Like, give me the so what. What, what would you, if you read this, what are you like, so what? And she thought about it, and, you know, she went away and she came back. She's like, I, and I asked her again, like, what, what's the so what? And she's like, well, I think it's just so what is just get your butt in gear. <laughs> okay? So that's the so what, guys. Hope community, go get your butt in gear. If you're mad, if you're, hey, don't talk to me. Go talk to her. She's downstairs with the kids right now. She, you know, it's a lot harder to be mad at, at her. But I thought about that, and I'm like, you know what? She's right. Like, that is the so what. Like, if Jesus is actually who he's claiming to be, then it's like, well, okay, I guess I've got to do something with that. That's got to shape who I am and how I see the world and, and the changes that I, in my own life. If he's actually God in the flesh, lived, crucified, risen, like, bringing this whole cosmic story to a fulfillment in himself, I'm like, well, okay, something, I, I need to respond to this. It's, it's, a, it's a passage that simply asks us to consider the claims of Jesus that he's making about himself and answer, okay, is this true or not? And if it is, I've got to do something with that, right? It, it, it's like, it's impossible. There's like this, this disconnect in our thinking if we can go, I think that's true, but I'm not going to do anything with it. That is crazy. That's crazy. It's, it's a passage that asks us to say, who is Jesus? And so that's really just where I want to leave all of us. Right? If you're someone, you're on a journey of faith, maybe you can, don't consider yourself a Christian yet. You're trying to ask these questions and figure this thing, thing out. I'm like, I would just invite you to, like, to start giving some serious consideration to the person of Jesus. Even if you land on he isn't who he's claiming to be. I don't think he is. Everyone owes it to themselves to go, like, is this true? Because no single person in all of human history has shaped the world like Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so is he who he claims to be or not? For those of us that have said, yes, he is, we're Christians, we're followers of, of Jesus, I'll repeat it again. Let's get our butts in gear. Like, let's go. Like, let's just, let's live this out and ask this question every day. Is the reality of who Jesus is informing who I am? Is the reality of who he is, does that, does, that, does that show up and make a difference like tomorrow when I go to work, with the people at work, and the people in my family, and the people I go to school with, and I'm having to deal with that person that I just, it's just button heads all the time, and there's tension. Like, like does the reality of who Jesus is make me go, you know what? I, I serve the, the king of glory who stepped down and, and gave his life, and I'm supposed to follow that. Like, does it, does it shape who I am and the way I see the world? Does who Jesus is inform how I spend my time, how I spend my money, the things in my life I say, this thing here is priority and this over here isn't because of who he is. Is Jesus shaping us in that kind of way? And and the beautiful thing is when we say yes and we live into that, we get to step into what he had promised earlier in that passage. When we say yes and we live into that, well, we're his sheep and he's holding us. And because of who he is, because he is God in the flesh, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, the so what is, I have freedom now. Like, I, I don't have to stay the way I was. I, am forget, I don't need to carry shame around anymore. I can, I can be set free from the things that hold me back, and whether it's, it's addiction or it's pain or it's shame or it's what people say about me, I don't have to carry that anymore. I go through the garbage of life because it comes, the so what, because of who he is, says, I'm still held. And this, isn't, this may be part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. See, there's beauty and power in the claims that Jesus makes. But they're nothing without the reality of the identity of who he is. The things that give them beauty and power is because of who says it, not just the statement itself. It's Jesus saying it. It's Jesus doing it. It brings me to this. There's this famous quote from from C.S. Lewis kind of revolving around this idea. And he says, what do we do with Jesus? Basically, you can either shut him up as a fool you can spit in his face and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And when you do, man, it's the abundant life, and it's beautiful. So my closing thought is, oh, community, let's get our butts in gear. Let's be these kind of people. It says, my goodness, Jesus, it changes everything. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much that we know who you are. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to wonder about it. Why? Because you stepped onto the planet. You became flesh and blood, so we could behold your glory. It's crazy to think about, and we thank you for that. God, I I pray that that who you are is revealed in the person of Jesus that would just be so clear in our lives, and it would shape everything about who we are and what we do and how we think and how we live and the way that we love, we love people the way that you do. God, I pray your spirit be working and moving in us and whatever that next thing looks like, whatever that so what looks like in us when we step into to, to the, what we would say maybe like the real world tomorrow or today when we go home, that the reality of who you are would change what we do and how we live and who we are. Through your spirit, show us what we need to do. Through your spirit, empower us to do it. We pray this all in Jesus' name.